Welcome to Cinematic Release. I'm your host, Jeremiah Sherman, and I have with me today, Bo Costa. Say hello, Bo. What's up, everyone? Uh, today, we're going to be talking about two movies, uh, a documentary, O.J. Made in America, and um, Bend It Like Beckham, uh, the theme being, I'm guessing, football. Those um, were two very different movies. <laughs> O.J. Made in America and Ben and Light Beckham are very, two very different tonally movies, yes, but that's part of the fun. Um, O.J. Yes. Made in America is a documentary about O.J. Simpson. And the entire scope of what O.J. Simpson means to the country. <laughs> um, essentially, it's just, if, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, Bo, you saw it as well. But it's basically a five-part documentary yes. produced by ESPN. And about part, yeah, about an hour and a half each. Um, basically, each part deals with a certain part of the OJ, either mythology or trial, and they also deal with putting it in the scope and context of Los Angeles and the uh, LAPD, and the relationship between blacks in Los Angeles and the LAPD the civil rights movement, the relationship between OJ and the LAPD and OJ and the blacks in the civil rights movement, and then there's the entire trial, and then there's like a coda afterwards. But, um, I kind of fucking love this, did you? Oh my god, it's, it's, I don't know, it's an equal part love-hate just because of growing up with that trial. I mean, I was a kid, but that's one of my earliest memories. Really? <laughs> yeah. No, I can specifically remember watching that verdict in third grade in my class. We did nothing that day. We just sat and watched the trial. Um, <laughs> I had the same thing in my ninth or tenth grade biology class. In which he's like, he's like, oh, the verdict's coming in. He stopped class. Brought the TV in and turned it on, and then there was a little bit of, well, that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I was in, I had two black teachers right next to each other, my teacher and the one next to us, and most of my class as well, so I was one of the few white kids in there, so I, and I didn't understand, because I was, you know, seven or whatever. (laughs) Well, the documentary does a very good job of also painting, putting into context the black community's feelings about O.J. pre- and post-trial. Yes, very much. Because the documentary, uh, Ezra Edelman, the documentarian behind this, does a very good job of trying to show you how O.J. views himself and how he almost defies the definition of the word post-racial. <laughs> he, definitely... <laughs> he certainly... No, I was just, he certainly liked to think that about himself anyway. Yeah, and he was absolutely <laughs> fine considering himself not black, and in fact considers others to be black. And then, once this happened, all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, I'm black, why are you doing this to me? How dare yep. you? My... <laughs> and he really embraced it over the last ten years, apparently. I didn't know a lot of that. Neither did I, and I didn't, honestly, I'm going to have to make a confession, I didn't realize he was in jail. Yeah, that was a big thing, I remember, because my mother specifically was furious after that verdict, so she viewed that as, 
like the documentary said, that was comeuppance. <laughs> well, because well, I remember the documentary starts and he's in jail. I'm like, when, when was OJ in jail? <laughs> Wait, he's in jail now? <laughs> what happened? Did they do a do-over? I don't think you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there was an entire Ashley Judd, Tommy Lee Jones movie about you can't do that. <laughs> the only reason I know this law. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I really appreciate um, documentaries nowadays tend to be very straightforward and very streamlined in what they're about. They tend to either be less documentaries and more uh, opinion editorials or they tend to be more, like, historical um, biodramas or historical... Um, thesis of just talking about like different uh, interpretations of what might have happened this is for uh, OJ Made in America is very much a Ken Burns style documentary in terms of it like it just takes in the scope and the context of everything else around the OJ trial and just allows you to make the connections while talking to a large variety of people who are either intimately or personally connected to OJ or the trial or just people who happen to be alive during the time. Like, they talked to Walter Mosley, who's an author of L.A. crime novels, the Easy Rollins series. And I don't think he has anything to do with the trial or O.J., but he just happens to be black and a crime writer. Yeah. Yeah. But I was sort of impressed with sort of the candor that people had in the interviews. Yeah, it was very much, because you could tell... I like that they tried to keep it so that it's hard to do that, view that trial with any kind of unbiased opinion because it was just that divisive. Right. But, you know, it, and the evidence obviously was so against him, but they did a really good job, even if they didn't do try to make him appear innocent or give, you know, they didn't really give you that view of it. They made it very clear how they reached a point where that jury would find that verdict. Right. And you understood it. Well, and like, and considering they only talked to two jury members, they did a very good job of making sure those two jury members were representative of the type of people you would get on the jury. Yes, yes. Uh, you had the one lady who just, well, she got, she was, a, she was in an abusive relationship that was so false she should have gotten out, and I don't have any sympathy for her. It, and it's, it's hard, like, yes, it's hard. Like, that is a hard, cold world to live in, lady. But I also like how it allows you, because the way the documentary is structured, part one is basically just a history lesson about L.A. and the history between uh, blacks in L.A. and the Los Angeles Police Department with its little side sort of biography of O.J. Simpson. Yes, growing up right in the middle of it right. and not knowing any of it because he was so separated from it somehow. Right, and then well, and then part two is basically the OJ myth. Them talking about OJ as both the person and as the concept of what we now know as OJ Simpson and what his existence meant to both whites at the time and blacks at the time, and talking also about the relationship between him and Nicole. Yeah, so then that was hard. And, you know, that's actually, that's why the Ron Ship parts were 
really fascinating to see how he started out. He ran the full gamut there of awestruck OJ lover to, you know, by the end of it, he was testifying against the man and still couldn't really bring himself to say he hated him or anything, though, which was how. (laughs) Well, someone made a really good uh, offhanded comment. I think it might have been Alonzo Duvalde. It could have been, I forget who. They said, if O.J. Simpson didn't exist, a novelist would have to create him. <laughs> That's a good quote, yeah. Yeah, and it is. Because it's very true, because the idea of O.J. is something out of literature, like of classic literature. He's like this, he pulled himself up, he molded himself in his own image of what he thought a great hero would be. And at the same time, he used everyone around him. <laughs> yep. And he had such a charisma, and he used it really for nothing but his own gain. And then and when the chips were down, as we saw through Ron Ship, uh, his friend Ron Ship, he would throw everyone to the wolves to get out safe. And he... He did, <laughs> and somehow kept some of those friends. It's unreal. Well, yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, we never underestimate just how powerful charisma and charm is. And, and I never I never realized, oh, I, I mean, I had an idea, obviously, even as a kid, you know, you know, OJ. I didn't know him so much as a football player as I knew him from, like, Naked Gun and movies right. and such. And so I understand there has to be some level of charisma to be a movie star, but still, wow. Right, and like not only that, but like I found it really interesting as like OJ is a football star, but he didn't play that much football. No, no, I'm, I don't remember how long his career was, but I mean, he it got out pretty well. <laughs> I, it was like I was, I was, I, I had memories of Bo Jackson. It's like this, they, they, they have almost like I think he played longer than Bo Jackson did in football, but still at the same time, it's like. You did not play that much football, and you are riding these football coattails for all they are worth. Which, if he was a, you know, if not for the trial, that'd be a go-get-it kind of thing. Go ahead, man, because I'm honestly surprised you didn't, we didn't hear anything about this in the documentary. I guess because he's, before this came up, but more about how concussions may have affected him, or... Right. You know, because you see that today, it's a huge topic. I guess OJ was a little bit before that ever came into play. Yeah, no, that's that's really just like in the last five, ten years. And again, as we said, he had a really short football career, so it might have not been affected by yeah. him at all. Not only it that, makes but, you wonder. Yeah, it makes you wonder if he was always that sociopath, and the documentary makes it feel like he always was that person. There's that one moment. With, in the first episode, I think it was when he was first going to college, and they had the interview with him and his. Um, I think she was his new wife. It was recently oh, yeah, married at wife. that. Yeah, yeah, and she, she's giving the answers to the interview, and he's looks like he's mouthing them along with her. And it's <laughs> weird. Well, like yeah, uh, Marguerite, I think it was her name. And, yes, and they make it very clear the fact that, like he basically just. Dumped her the moment Nicole Simpson came on the onto the screen. The moment he saw, it's like that's done with her. Moving on to you. And the obs- yeah. the sort of jealous obsession that he had with Nicole was never really explored with on Marguerite. And I don't know if that's because he never 
showed any kind, or if maybe this was that, that sort of racial bias again where they were more interested in how he felt about the white lady than he was and how they felt about his first black wife. They very much said so. I, I don't remember if it, I think it was one of the jurors said if he had done that to Marguerite, he would have been thrown in prison. Yeah, absolutely. I was... I really did like, though, with the documentary, there were, like, a lot of stuff that happened on the sides, and they don't go out of the way to make a big deal about it. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, that, that's cool. Like, when they show <laughs> uh, the the t- seating chart for the restaurant that Nicole and her family were at the night that she died, like, yes. the seating reservations, they have the Simpsons, you have Nicole Browns, and they're crossed off, and beneath her name is the name Nimoy. I didn't notice that. And I was like, oh, I remember the seating chart, but I don't remember that. I was like, holy crap, Leonard Nimoy sat in the same restaurant that night. And they don't make a big deal <laughs> out of it. It's just something that's there. And they probably weren't even aware of it if they had. They're like, you know, we're just going to let it go. Yeah. But... Makes you wonder if they brought him in now to ask him about this. And he's like, oh. <laughs> I don't have it. I was, just, I, was, I was eating people. Leave me alone. <laughs> But, like, even, like, um, the last part, after the whole sort of Marx Brothers caper happens and he gets arrested, and you have Marsha Clark as the court reporter for Entertainment Tonight covering the case. Yeah. And they don't go out of the way to really be like, isn't this wacky? They just go, nope, this this happens. This is how the world works. I mean, honestly, for that poor lady, I don't even want to... (laughs) know how she I I hope she ended up there for a good reason you know right well it's one of the things where I was really taken aback by the defense attorney um on the Cocker team that they talked to I forget his name I don't have my notes in front of me I'm on my wife's computer um but he was the one who was basically the the Johnny Cochran cheerleader and yeah. he, he was basically yes. defending every decision they made. And up in, up to and, and including the taking down all the pictures on OJ's wall of him and his wife friends and, Nicole yes. Bla- and Nicole's family and putting up the black friends and his own family. And he even said, like, yeah. I don't think OJ even knew he had some of these pictures. Yeah, no. <laughs> they, like they said, was it? He had never been in a room with that many black people. He had never been in a room with that many black people in his life or something like that. <laughs> well, he even said, like, Marsha Clark called him out on it. Like, this is dirty yes. poo. And they were like, yeah. what? And then he just turns to the camera and goes, if he was Latino, we would have put him in a sombrero. We would have had a damn mariachi yeah. band playing out on his front lawn. And I'm just like, I yes. am. I was sort that of... That guy sh- was... In- yeah, that guy was infuriating because he was so unapologetic they, you know, they interviewed the other one too and he at least was like well you know I do what my job says I had to defend him I did what I thought oh, yeah, I had to get the guy who made up the conspiracy theory the scientist uh, no it was the uh, forensics one the one that yeah, was the... I can't remember his name yeah, yeah the, the forensics guy yeah he was basically they, they tried to pin him down it's like do you really believe this and he goes believe yeah. is not the word you need to be asking me about I put forth yeah. an argument, and like he never says that clearly I'm lying. He was just basically dancing around, like I, I I used words to get him off, and that's basically what I was paid to do. Yes. <laughs> but going well, back to the what I we'll call the Cochran defender. Well, really, sort of, 
I was sort of gobsmacked by how shameless it was, but even he drew the line at the... At this one point in the trial during the closing arguments in which Johnny Cochran compares Mark Furman to Hitler. Yes. Godwin's Law in the Flesh. Yes. He goes, it... Hitler, and if you convict him, you know what Hitler did. <laughs> and even that, he's that's... like, um, that wasn't in the original notes. No, um, it was disgusting. <laughs> and he's like, and they go, do you think Johnny went too far? Well, Johnny was always pushing it. Yeah, I would have used a different metaphor. Which that's is, how you know. That's how, that's you, how know. you know. Even he's like, man, that was <laughs> fucked up. I wouldn't with even the have guy, done that. Yeah, with the guy who spends the whole documentary just completely unapologetic for every dirty thing they did. And even he's like, uh, the Hitler thing might have been pushing it. That's how you know how bad that was. I was, and I, cool, and I love how the, the documentary set up Johnny Cochran pre-OJ talking about Johnny Cochran's relationship to the L.A. City Council, to the L.A. Police Department, to the black community and the civil rights community. And just sort of like how they never out and out call out what seems like a very betrayal of principles. But at the same time, this very heavily hinted at, like, this is a different Johnny Cochran than what we saw in Part 1 or 2. The Johnny Cochran we saw on those two. Uh, and Go ahead. Because you can see, again, he was also, it's something that did really well the, throughout the first few episodes leading up to the trial. It really made you understand how Johnny Cochran would get to a mindset where he's willing to do that for O.J. Simpson, right. you know? Well, like, and it does a very good job of explaining why the black community nationally was so happy with the verdict. Yes. And even though, because we've seen the pictures of Nicole and Ron Goldman, we know the brutal violence that was visited upon them. I had never seen those before I saw this documentary. I think that was when it came out, or maybe a couple months after. I had never seen those before. That was that was pretty brutal. That it was, was, and like when you see hard the, to look at. They were very hard to look at when you see the cuts to the throat, and I'm like, there yes. is. A violence and an animosity to that that is sort of breathtaking. And that level of brutality makes you that's just I know it sounds weird because just any psycho could have done that level of violence, but there was just such like you said, it's just there's a raw brutality and anger to it, and you have to think, well, who would be angry enough to do that to someone? Well no. There's that, and they do a very good job of laying out everything, almost like as as, a, as if they were the prosecuting team. Like, there's a pattern <laughs> with O.J. Yes. And his behavior. Be- and this better is, than the prosecution, apparently. <laughs> well, they also didn't have to contend with Judge Ito and the yes. judge. Yes, yes. Because, again, as they made a point, when the, they did the civil suit, they absolutely found him guilty. But there's a much lower level, a lower bar of burden of proof for that. Understandably, because you don't... Civil suits and criminal suits should not be tried in the same way. No. Well, yeah, one's not leading to jail time for someone. Right. But... I was... The candor in which the people spoke, both just his friends and his former friends and the people who were not really friends of his, but were just, like, very honest in, like, the feelings, like, uh... Ezra did a very good job of 
coaxing these people into a place where they felt comfortable confessing a lot of things. Because That's true, and I'm absolutely surprised they didn't have more jurors on just for that reason, but I imagine maybe some of them just don't want to talk about it at all. Well, if the one is to believe, a lot of them probably are still being ostracized by their community for that verdict. Yes, or, that's true, because that, that's what the one brought up, I think right. the younger one. The younger one, the younger black lady said, I live in a, major- a predominantly white neighborhood and no one talks to me anymore. Yes. Um, but, like, that, and that's a mark of a really good documentary in terms of getting your subject comfortable enough to just talk. And we, if we make it sound like this is nothing but a bunch of talking heads, it's not. There's a lot of talking heads, but it's so much more than that. Yes, it did. It really did a great job of keeping you engaged throughout, making sure, you know, you would go from, you'd, they'd show you an event, they'd show you the lead up to it, they'd show you what happened, they'd have people that, you know, discuss it, how it mattered to the times then, how it mattered to oj or didn't matter to oj depending on when it took place it did a really good job keeping you going and thrilled throughout they did they did a remarkable thing of dramatically setting things up in advance and having these little payoffs like with marshall clark being a court reporter that was nice it's a nice little (laughs) nugget but having mark Furman in part one and if you know anything you're like holy crap i know that guy He's a racist pile of shit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and yet, when you talk, when we were talking to him in part one and part two, he just seems like a reasonable guy. And then honestly, by the end, it makes you wonder, how bad was he railroaded? And I don't want to think that, because just you can't really defend the things he said, but then they make you actually think about it a little bit. And I, don't, I can't defend what he said, but it makes you wonder... Just how badly they attacked him. Like, how much is blown out of proportion, how much isn't. And Marcia Clark herself even says, fuck that guy. Yes. She's on his team. Fuck that guy. (laughs) Yeah, fuck that guy, definitely, because there's just no defending the racism in his remarks. But, and the things he's defended, like, I think in the first one, they talked about, or no, when they showed the Rodney King um, beating, how. Furman, you know, right away, it's not sympathetic at all. Furman says, well, we could have ended that in 10 seconds if we were allowed to use a chokehold. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we see the pattern of behavior, but the fact that Furman felt so comfortable just, like, just having that little tidbit of, we could have ended that with a chokehold. And I bet you, Edelman was like, well, that's going in. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, racist jackass that he may be, he's not Hitler. No, and he's probably, I mean, there's not really anything real other than the obviously justified paranoia, but paranoia all the same, that he had set the crime scene up. Right, and I really love, um, one of of the uh, friends of OJ was like, I thought he was innocent until someone asked me if I thought Thurman planted the glove. And I said... I think he did. And they go, well, think about what all Furman has to know before he planted the glove. He has to know that O.J. Simpson, the most recognizable black man on the planet, six foot five, 200 pounds, has no alibi. That he's not on a plane. He has to know that he's not out eating, 
that he's not in a gas station. He has to know all of this before he plants the glove. And, and that's, that's the, what made you think he was guilty? <laughs> and that and that's the truth of most conspiracy theories. You start thinking, well, what does the conspirator have to know? Oh, right. they couldn't have possibly known all that. Right, exactly. And that's and that's also like the thing that kills most conspiracy theories of is rational thought of what does this person yeah. have to know before he puts in motion these chain of events that who knows what the outcome will be. Exactly. It just looks like it's got to be, it's too hard to pull off most of the time, and in this case, it was really impossible for him to know. Well, not only that, but they make a very good job. Uh, government, the, the justice system, much like government, has different branches. As we know, if anyone's ever watched Law and Order, there's the law and there's the order. But they do a really good job of talking to all the different branches in the justice system, the cops who visited his house on domestic disturbances, the detectives who arrested him, the California district attorney, the prosecuting attorney, the forensic expert for the defense team, um, jurors. Like, they make a very conceited effort to talk to all of them. And as the events unfold, you start to understand that they all think that this is messed up. Yeah. Everything like, about it. When they watched the Bronco chase, every single one of them was like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> How anyone could come back from that and think, oh, wow, this guy is totally innocent. I don't get it. <laughs> well, not only that, but like when they're watching, when they talk to everyone involved about the Bronco chase, the uh, person in the helicopter who photographed is like, this is surreal. They should have stopped this by now. He's not exactly going 100. Yeah, yeah. The California Think district attorney is watching it while he's doing reports on television. He's like, is he going to my house? Because no <laughs> one's stopping him. The uh, detective who arrested him is watching it on television. It's like, why aren't they going? Why aren't they blocking him off? This doesn't make any sense. Like, everyone is like, we don't understand. <laughs> we know how you know, this works, and, that, and it's not like this. Yeah, that moment in particular, this is something that was brought up a lot throughout was they talked about a lot about privilege in general of you know and the lack of you know obviously you know african-american citizens throughout the previous 20 years had no privilege at all then here was oj this man throughout the 80s when he had what was it 10 domestic um abuse calls at least something like that yeah i i'm trying to remember the exact number i think it was about 10 and all these other instances throughout his life and even something like that you can see in the treatment throughout before before his arrest the privilege this man operated with that no one else in his community could have well and that was the weird thing like in the documentary basically was about this like the sort of double-edged sword that is oj simpson he has all this privilege but he is a black man whether he likes to admit it or not and this is weird sort of fork in the road of American society that has O.J. Simpson in it. And he really is this sort of like this tragic hero that Fitzgerald probably would have created or something in terms of like, I don't want to say hero because I think he's a murderer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, know, I know what you mean though because yeah. he was to so many people. That was, whether he was the right person or not, right. he was a benchmark for society at that time. Well, like, and even when he was arrested for the murder of Nicole and Ron Goldman, 
like you, they talk to the interview, the arresting officers, and you hear them tell it, and like you hear his reasons. It's like, well, that that makes sense. But then you have Marsha Clark go, well, why didn't you ask him this? Or why didn't you ask him this? I'm like, you know, she has a really fucking good point. Why didn't you ask him that? And that's his privilege in play, because he was OJ. <laughs> they didn't need to ask him all that. Because he was the star of the Hurst commercial, and you can't yeah. fuck with Hurts. No. <laughs> and I will say, like, going back, like, this documentaries like this, I kind of enjoy because, like I said, the modern day documentary is sort of like a Michael Moore thing, in which they just sort of like they have a, a point of view, and yes. or the kind of like um, a documentary came out a little while ago called The Tower, in which it's basically just a different way of looking at an historical event, and by different way I mean visually. They tend to use new technology or something, and they basically just interpret or delve into an historic event. Documentaries didn't used to be like that. There used to be something like Harlan County, USA, or an Errol Morris documentary, like Thin Blue Line, in which they would start to do one thing, and then something else happened, and they would just follow that. So documentaries would take years to make, because they weren't going after any specific thing. They were just following their gut. But then, uh, because so much money is involved in these things... People are like, we're, gonna, we're not going to give you money until you can tell me definitively what the hell this thing is about. Yes. And so now you have these Ken Burns and this ESPN documentary of, this is exclusively what this is about. But at the same time, he found a way to blow it up and to make a very nuanced, because I've only watched it once. You've watched it twice, but I guarantee you I'm going to pick up new things when I watch it again. Absolutely. I certainly did. What did you pick up? Do you have anything? I just, um, a lot of it was... Just there's so much that just in my own perspective that has changed. Something that's really interesting about this is how this is coming back. This the racial tensions leading to what happened with the OJ trial. How that's so in play today, and how every, especially now with the past election, and how these racial this racial divisiveness is returned again. And you can feel like I don't know. I could see that happening again today with someone else. I agree. Agreed. And, and, and I think could, that's... I don't know. I think the, I think the document... I think Edelman did that on purpose. I think he very, like, discreetly wove that in into, like, this is a tapestry that's happened, but if we're not careful, it can easily happen again. L.A. is just one city. Yes, and it is happening again, and it's horrifying. Well, not only that, but it's a, it's a nice educational experience in terms of, like, local civil rights, because I live in L.A., and civil rights isn't just, like, Mobile, Alabama. It happened in cities all across the country. And I didn't know about Eula Bell, the lady who was shot in her front yard for her overdue electric bill. Me either. And I was sort of, like, just dumbfounded. I was doubly dumbfounded when the commissioner was like, they keep saying she was shot over $34. That's not true. She was $37.65. Or something like that. And I'm like, man, I'm telling you from one asshole to another, asshole. That's not making yourself look any better. (laughs) And it's like one of the things, like, I can see that nowadays. And people are like, oh, people are calling me racist. I'm not racist. Racism. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, but, um, so... That's OJ Made in America. ESPN did a... That came out last year. ESPN is having... Doing some really wonderful things. They came out with a movie last year as well. Um, Queen of Katwe. 
which didn't get a lot of play, which is sad, with uh, David Oyelowo and Lupita Nyong'o. A lot of their 30 for 30s lately, since that started have been fantastic. Oh, God, yes. Uh, this was... Yeah, they they've done a, a ESPN may be really hard to watch and sensationalized and too many talking heads screaming stupid things. But then you get uh, something like OJ Made in America, and you can see uh, it, it regains that credibility just a little bit. <laughs> well, there's a there's another there's a thirty for thirty called um, Small Potatoes Who Killed the USFL, and it's about. I... Don't think I've seen that one. <laughs> I think I'm not a football fan, but I kind of loved it. You should check it out. It's a. That. Uh, by the way, a spoiler alert: the person who murdered the USFL turns out to be the president of the United States. <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> it's really kind of funny to see Bert Reynolds just sort of scowl at Donald Trump's name. <laughs> <laughs> so it's worth it, really, just for that alone, just to see Bert Reynolds and just all the Donald Trump hate. <laughs> What's it? I don't know. That makes me think of the XFL too. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose him and uh, Vince and uh, Donald Trump are connected now through Linda McMahon. <laughs> well, it's one of the things where, like, it, I actually thought a lot about the uh, uh, what was the XSL? What? What's the Vince the, McMahon Football League? Yeah, the XFL. The XFL. I thought a lot about that while watching USFL because it seemed very much like they were trying to do the same thing. Of yes. just starting another league because baseball has a national league and an American league, but football just has one league. Well, it used to have two, and the thing well, is, the they merged for a yeah, reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, the USFL was basically this uh, upstart that tried to be another league, and it's just, it's really fascinating. We're not going to dwell too much on it because we're not about the USFL today. But uh. <laughs> OJ Made in America, great documentary. It's in five parts, though, each one about 90 minutes, so. I don't suggest you sit it, you do it all in one sitting, but at the very least, you know, an episode a day or one episode a weekend, you'll be fine. I think the first time I watched it, I sat down and watched about three episodes because they were running a marathon on ESPN. <laughs> I sat down and watched about three of them all in one day. That was not a productive day. <laughs> no, no, no. That sounds like the day I watched Shawshank Redemption just like on an endless loop back when TBS <laughs> But moving on to our next movie because it's all about football. Bend it like Beckham. But the other kind of football. Right, the, the British football. <laughs> actual, actual football. The other football that I also know nothing about. Yes, yeah, not much here either. <laughs> <laughs> but um, had you seen Bend it like Beckham before? A long time ago, I think when it first came out, because that movie had a lot of attention. Yes, I saw it for the first time about a year ago. Bender Light Beckham uh, is a movie, unlike the other one, unlike um, 2016 O.J. Made in America. This one, I believe, came out in 92. Again, I don't have my notes. Um, it was uh, 2002. 2002, my bad. Um, but it is a movie about a young Indian woman named Jess Mender and her best friend Jules, played by Keira Knightley. And... That was the, crazy, seeing her so young again. <laughs> that was the crazy. trials and tribulation of Jess Minda and her traditional Indian family and trying to be her own woman while meshing her culture with the British culture and wanting to play soccer and also just not being 100% down with what their version of what a woman should be. And 
And then, in addition to that, this movie um, was supposedly originally a lesbian teen romance. And you can tell pretty early on because <laughs> Jules, the first time she sees Jules, <laughs> yeah, that first time like... she sees uh, Jess Mender, it's like like the pounding heart in the cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like. <laughs> There was like I'm, I was waiting for Ace of Ace to start playing sometime soon because I was just like, "What? That's the first is real over here. That is not just I see a woman playing soccer. That is I see a woman playing soccer." I mean, it's like she's jogging through the park and she's gonna fall and slip when she sees her because she can't concentrate <laughs> on anything. I was waiting for that, but like no, like when I saw this movie for the first time a year ago, I was getting excited as the movie went along because I was like, "Oh my god." This is this. They're gonna they're gonna end up together. Clearly, this is the meant to be. Clearly, this is a relationship. I mean, right down to she saw you kissing a boy. What me kissing a boy? <laughs> and I was like, oh, clearly, this is there's no way this isn't gay. What? Hello, random coach. What are you doing? Why are you now? Wait, what? And, yeah, and so her? it was a huge, a huge tonal shift, just out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, they're fighting over the coach, and wait, wait, what? When did that happen? That's what happens when you go to Germany. <laughs> Nothing oh, good happens in Germany. <laughs> oh, I think some of our other uh, fundamentals might be upset with that. <laughs> oh, yeah, so we have, we have some Germans, don't we? I apologize. <laughs> um... <laughs> um but no, it's it's a really sweet movie, and up until it starts trying to contort itself and not be a lesbian teen romance, it's a really awesome little sort of like slice of life of that time movie about a young woman finding herself and discovering herself. Yeah. And then it turns yeah, into so this it... weird sort of, I love the coach. No, I love the coach. And I'm just like, that coach is incredibly effeminate looking. Anyone else notice that? <laughs> uh, just are we, why are we arguing over like the guy has no chemistry with him, the ball has more chemistry with these people than he does why are you falling over I was him surprised. I was surprised to see like I, I, when after I watched it and I was looking things up about because it was driving me crazy I couldn't remember that was Kira Knightley and I remember looking it up and then I <laughs> So one of the first Google results was about, you know, the accolades and stuff and about how much people love that guy's performance in that movie. And I'm thinking, that was the most bland person in the history of film. Are you kidding me? That, there's, a, there's a school of acting that's called, and it's called Mayo. And it's basically just mayonnaise. You whip up really good. <laughs> and then you jiggle it around the screen and people are like, oh, hey, look, that's acting. <laughs> And I don't want to be hard on the guy because it's not like he was bad. It's just There's nothing I was surprised there. to see. I was surprised to see praise. Yes, so was I. I was like, I was kept like, well, there's praise in what I would call the hetero, uh, hetero uh, movie criticism. There's not so much when she's de- delved deep into uh, LGBTQIA community. It tends to be like, and then we have this guy, which I kind of <laughs> feel sorry for that guy. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. It's not his fault. (laughs) Yeah, but Bender Like Beckham is, for a certain generation of lesbians, to my understanding, it's sort of like a seismic event. Because it is so, like, 
a down low movie of this is about gay women. It's so totally not about gay women. It so totally is though. Yeah, because like, it, it, it's the it, only it, way you explain the bizarre. I think my daughter's gay. I'll come to terms with it. Oh my god, you're actually gay. No, yes. I'm not. Let's go to my best friend's sister's wedding. Yeah, and just soccer in general. Like, they're so angry about soccer. And it's like, no one's actually that angry about soccer. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, and I understand to some degree what they're trying to do with that in terms of, like, what femininity means to different generations. And, like, to her mother's yes. generation, being a woman meant this. And to yes. Jewel's generation, being a woman means this. Same way with Jessmine and her mother. It's like, and to her mother, being an Indian woman knew, meant knowing how to make all the dishes, meant being a good housewife. While Jessmine is like, I really have no interest in doing that. Yeah. But I... then at the same time, going back to Jules running to catch up with Jessmine out of nowhere in the park, and I'm like, you are so in love with this woman, it's not even it funny. It was, it was just really early in the movie, you could tell that as soon as she appears on screen, the... <laughs> literally appears on screen seeing Schmender play soccer and just like <gasps> it's the most and, blatant thing you've ever seen when then comes the weird scene inside the locker room in which they're changing and I, I know it's supposed to be played as oh Jessmender isn't used to seeing other people naked but that's not the look she has on her face <laughs> <laughs> the look she has on her face is oh my I mean, I I don't I, see the thing is I can almost buy it from her point of view because it very much is a well I'm just not used to this culture at all. It's a big part of the movie is just how weird or not weird. I don't want to say that, but just how she's never seen any culture besides her own, and she doesn't know how to react to that. She never realized this existed. She could go play soccer with other girls, and wait a minute, what is going on? Well, not only that, but like the weird sort of like. Oh, yeah, and your best friend, he's gay, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, doesn't that feel like, oh, okay, we put this in as a, oh, gee, maybe I feel that way, too, kind of moment, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was that weird thing of, like, you do, okay, well, I I'm afraid of the backlash, so they won't be gay. I'll make him gay, <laughs> and that way we yeah, can maybe. have a gay character, and still, it's like, this movie is so wonderful and weird at the same time. When you start trying to parse it from a queer perspective. <laughs> because, as you and that's said... That's funny because... Go ahead. I was going to say, because they threw that in, in, in the during the credits, they literally have the scene where the all the all of her friends are doing the, you know, the song, and they're, like, rubbing on each other, like, <laughs> making fun of the character... Not making fun of, but, like, you know, just how they were all so... I can't tell the... You know, Friends, I can't tell them they'll you know they'll hate me for it. And then in the credits, they're all rocking on each other, like you know, poking fun at that I part have of the movie. I've never seen a group of young men that comfortable with other men's bodies in my life. <laughs> it, it's, it's really you just start thinking about it, and it does feel like yes, they started out making this movie, and then. Like the rumor says, oh, well, we can't do that because this audience will be upset, and this is 2002, we can't do that yet. <laughs> right. Well, also keep in mind, this is also about the same time when Five Green Tomatoes came out. A lot of people didn't realize that Iggy and Ruth were lesbians. 
because in the boom in the movie it's really sort of downplayed and subtle yeah. and they're like oh they're just really good friends but if you read the book it's clear as day they say she loved her and not in a friend yeah. love but it's a romantic love <laughs> but yeah and this I is could, yeah. it's sort of, it's sort of refreshing to go back in a time when like even just like hinting at a character was gay was a huge deal for people yep and, and as much as that still... best, the best friend feels yep. a little bit shoehorned in, like that gay character, that for a lot of people that's the first time they saw a gay Indian, a gay <laughs> Indian boy. So I didn't mean it. Yeah, I I don't know that just it felt just out of nowhere. It really did. Just that almost felt like an apology, like you said, like oh, or not an apology, but just like well, I couldn't do this, so I'll do this instead. Well, like, yeah, it does have that sort of weird sort of, like, Seinfeld, I'm not gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> because when Jewel finds out her mother thinks she's gay, she's like, how dare you? I'm not gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that, though, mother. Yeah. Gay women look like all. Oh, they look like you. They look like me. There's no one way a person looks when they're gay. But I'm not gay. And when her, and when her mother is freaking out and about the kiss you know that wasn't a kiss right. and they're driving away and she's like no we didn't kiss i <laughs> hugged her she's my friend oh well not that i have anything against that i love <laughs> women can kiss other women if they like in a completely non-romantic way that's what <laughs> it's we're getting a little bit off on the tangent but with bending like beckham it's almost impossible not to yeah but <laughs> getting back to the movie itself i actually really do like the movie it's a very charming movie Yes, it is, and it was refreshing after, you know, the overwhelming, you know, depressed, the depression that is OJ in made America. <laughs> well, that's part of the uh, the point of this podcast, to do, like, one deathly serious one, or one, like, classic, and one that's sort of fun, if not, if it doesn't have to be good, but it does have to be fun. Yeah. But on this one, like, I really sort of, like, I was struck by, she has a talent for montage, that I don't think gets recognized enough when you read reviews for this movie. Because visually, it's not that inventive. It's just, it's very good. They have stuff down the background and so some motifs with the uh, the painting in the background and the way that she has Beckham in the background that treats it very much like the painting she has downstairs. Um, it's an, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with um, Punjab culture, so I don't really feel comfortable uh naming what that painting is. Be yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, like, the fact that she has Beckham on her wall very much in the same way that her mother has that holy figure position and on talk, the living room and wall. And talks to it the same way. Yeah. It, that's kind of their both, that's both of their go-to and they're just trying to get things off their chest. Right. And, and they both have to, like, how dare you say that in front of him? Yeah. <laughs> But at the same time, at the end of the movie, towards the end, when they're at the sister's wedding, and Jess Mender goes and gets to play the second half of the soccer match, she, uh, the director, um, again, no, I don't have my notes, um, does this really interesting thing where she intercuts between the soccer match and the wedding, and she uses the wedding music to do so, and it's really really well done I really love that sequence 
totally because, agree. That might have been my favorite part of the movie. Just it was just because it felt like a good triumph for everyone involved, and it was nice. Well, not only that, but it, it really is like people being happy and comfortable in what they're doing. Exactly. And it was also this weird sort of like this sort of nice corollary of she doesn't really feel comfortable or happy here, but she feels really comfortable and happy there. And also the sort of sadness of the fact that there may not be a bridge between the two. Like at the end of the movie, yeah. there's a promise of a bridge, but we don't know for sure. That's true, because, you know, she's off, you know, to Santa Clara, and, With you know, she has... With jewels and a heterosexual wandering off <laughs> into the sunset. Because <laughs> we all know that two women soccer players just wander off to California together. It's totally all right. That's, that's a stereotype. <laughs> I don't mean to stereotype. I'm At sorry. the same time, that kiss that she has with the coach, I'm just like, this is creepy. Can we not do this? Yeah, and again, it's just the guy. It's the guys rushing into the airport at the end out of nowhere, and it's like they're just leaving, and everyone, the family's there, and everyone belongs. And then here comes this guy running up. Who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> I'm the coach, and I'm here to wonder: Do you like me in that special way that a girl likes a boy? And she's like, mm, I don't really know. And I'm like, We don't either, buddy. Because <laughs> you literally came out of left fucking field. Yeah, I can't even remember your name. What? Are, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I, there's a scene in the movie in which she's like, I won't be the girl's soccer coach anymore. We can do whatever we want. And I'm just like, yeah. Could you be less creepy with that, buddy? Could you just tone it down a little? Because yeah, at because no time does she like, oh, goody. And they threw in, like, oh, yeah, that's not cool. You shouldn't be doing that. And then they, like, make a big thing out of it that, it, oh, yeah, root for them, even though you just told us that's weird. You shouldn't do that. It's just like, this is one of the more creepier relationships I've seen in a movie. And I know I'm supposed to root for them. I, I just can't. I'd rather the Jessmen do not end up with anybody than this guy, please. Whatever makes her happy, you know, go for if, it. But if that she just realized didn't feel... she's an asexual romantic, fine. I'm that just fine. Did... Yeah, the only thing that really felt like it made her happy was playing soccer and her family being okay with it. So just yeah. stay with that. That's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's a wonderful message. <laughs> I guess you know. I guess you have to have the love interest. They're not. The, this, this is not the first movie to throw that in there because you have to have the love interest. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's one of the things where when I sh when I became more and more woke in terms of LBTQGIA representation, I became more and more aware of just like how like what a shoehorned character some people are in romantic comedies, and I'm just yep. like. I, why are you here? You are utterly unnecessary. <laughs> oh, you're just here for them to fight over. But the movie was yep. interesting before they started fighting. Much like Ben and like Beckham. When they started fighting, I'm like, you're not really into this fight. And also, the fights are so inorganic. Like, they just feel like they're searching for the wrong thing to say to keep the fight going rather than any actual resolution. Yeah, like, you betrayed me. I'm like, that's a strong word to use for she almost <laughs> kissed a dude that you had a picture of in your room. Yeah, and I was confused when I saw that picture because I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Are they dating in any way? Or is it just she likes him and he's unaware? Like, we watched they the movie a second time for this podcast. I was just like, Okay, I can definitely see the director putting in the breadcrumbs of she has definite feelings for this coach. 
Yes, and absolutely. And he's definitely yes. doing the, okay, no, no, no. And then Jasmine comes along, and it's like, no, 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 hello. And I'm yes. like, you are just like the Irish Le Pew. Could we not? <laughs> <laughs> and then that weird moment when, like, he doesn't, like, stick up for her when she gets a racist insult pulled out of her, and she gets penalized. And he's like, yeah. you, you physically overreact, and I'm like, fair game. But they did call her a racial epithet. It's like, hey, I understand. I'm Irish. I understand there's a world of history between the UK and Ireland. I get that. I just want you to understand from the American perspective, I basically just heard, I understand. I'm white. Yeah, I mean, I can't pretend. I know the Irish have faced a lot of prejudice of their own. And I don't know. I can't pretend to know English history. That just feels like a total dude. Shut up. Moment. <laughs> and I'm sure, like maybe, because since it is a woman of color who wrote it, I'm pretty sure that she understands the dichotomy, and it might just be a cultural thing. Yes. That ha- speaking of cultural things, I don't know how much you pay attention to the background, but there's a scene when he's filling out something, and Jules comes to him to talk about the scouts. And there's these weird arcade games in the back. And I swear uh, to God, they look like out of something out of Star Trek, The Next Generation. I don't remember that. And I had a freeze frame in and everything, and I called my wife over. I was like, what the fuck are these things? And she's like, you're, you're obsessing too much over nothing. I'm like, I don't know what they are. They don't behave like video games. <laughs> you know, like the consoles on Star Trek, where they, like, they were like these sort of like horizontal light bars that would go up and down? Yes. That's what these <laughs> I things don't remember were. That. <laughs> I don't remember that in this. I guess just because, you know, I was like, okay, what's he doing? Okay, well, all right, whatever. <laughs> I understand, but because he's such a fucking vacuum of anything interesting, my eyes were desperate to find something. And then I saw bright, shining, flashing lights in the back, and I said, ooh, what's that? And then I went, no, seriously, what the hell is that? <laughs> Maybe uh, it was like yeah, maybe it was like in a SpongeBob when they're on the spaceship and he's just messing with the joystick because there's flashing lights. Maybe it was never <laughs> an arcade game at all. <laughs> uh, what's this button do? I don't know. Somewhere off, like two doors down, the lights are flashing off and on. Who's doing that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and maybe that's it. Maybe someone was messing with the lights on the other side of the building. There may be a whole other story to this. Maybe that's how they turn the uh, all the relationships on and off on, in this. Alright, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so overall, uh, Bender Like Beckham, I really enjoyed. It's a sort of a tragedy if what they say about the original script is true. Um, it does lend for some hilarious watching, though, if you're, like, if you're one of those people who, like, while you're watching something, you actually try to figure out the rationalization behind motivations. Because then uh, once that happens, things just start breaking down. You're like, I don't, what? Okay, clearly this used to be something else. Yes. And I you know what, know. even without that, it was, even without that, it was still nice. Whatever truth there is to that or not, just Minder and Jewel still had a great relationship, and it made the movie more enjoyable for it, whether they're friends, even just being friends, if that's what they wanted. It was a nice wanted. platonic yes. girl power was, friendship. Yes, and it was just this, a... Go ahead. It was just a good movie in general for just it's and it was a nice one because it fit so well. I can I'm not Indian, I'm not Irish, I'm not British. I I so 
I don't know the specifics of that, but you can tell how it's a movie that works both for people with their own culture and just as a general uh, idea of what women have been fighting and what stereotypes, you know, they've gone through all these years. So it works no matter what culture you have. I'm sure it works even better if you are Indian and that you know all this, you know, firsthand. But either way, it's just... It was well, if you need very to play nice. soccer. Yes. Well, I, it just works overall. I really appreciate that the way Jess Menda and her family talked, they would have moments where they would slide into Punjabi. Yes. And there's no subtitle for that. And that's you don't, fine, you don't need you get it because you, you understand what they're saying, but at the same time, because I watch it with subtitles because I'm half deaf, and there, there's no subtitle for that either. And I appreciate that there's that sort of organic. This is how people talk when you're meshing two cultures together. Yes. If you've ever been around another a, fam, a family of immigrants who don't speak English as a native language, there is that sort of mixture of the native tongue and English. And it's done. And when it's done by a person who knows it, it feels organic. When it's done by a person who doesn't know it, and it's just a white person writing it from the room in Brooklyn, it feels really forced and racist. Yeah, that, and thankfully that wasn't the case here. You know, because yeah, right. it, you could tell how it just, if you like you said, if you've been around any family like that, you, it was perfect. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to come to a close right now. This has been the third episode of Cinematic Release. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode, in which we'll talking about wood chippers and bad wigs when we talk about Fargo and Catch the Heat. Bo, thank you <laughs> for being with me. Uh, Absolutely. All right. Everyone have a good day. Okay. See you, everybody. <laughs>